Chapter Six of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Chapter Six: The Mill Wheel of Steers. Meantime, at the ranch, when Judkins' news had sent Venters on the trail of the rustlers, Jane Witherstein led the injured man to her house, and with skilled fingers dressed the gunshot wound in his arm. "'Judkins, what do you think happened to my riders?' I, "'I'd rather not say,' he replied. "'Tell me. Whatever you'll tell me, I'll keep to myself. I'm beginning to worry about more than the loss of a herd of cattle. Venters hinted of—' "'But tell me, Judkins.' "'Well, Miss Witherstein, I think as Venters thinks. "'Your riders have been called in.' "'Judkins, by whom?' "'You know who handles the reins of your Mormon riders.' "'Do you dare insinuate that my churchmen have ordered in my riders?' "'I ain't insinuating nothing, Miss Witherstein,' answered Judkins, with spirit. "'I know what I'm talking about.' I didn't want to tell you. Oh, I can't believe that. I'll not believe it. Would Tull leave my herds at the mercy of rustlers and wolves just because—because— because... No, no, it's unbelievable. Yes, that particular thing's unheard of around Cottonwoods. But begging pardon, Miss Witherstein, there never was any other rich Mormon woman here on the border, let alone one that's taken the bit between her teeth. That was a bold thing for the reserved Judkins to say, but it did not anger her. This rider's crude hint of her spirit gave her a glimpse of what others might think. Humility and obedience had been hers always. But had she taken the bit between her teeth? Still, she wavered. And then, with quick spurt of warm blood along her veins, she thought of Blackstar when he got the bit fast between his iron jaws and ran wild in the sage. If she ever started to run— Jane smothered the glow and burn within her, ashamed of a passion for freedom that opposed her duty. "'Judkins, go to the village,' she said, "'and when you have learned anything definite about my riders, please come to me at once.' When he had gone, Jane resolutely applied her mind to a number of tasks that of late had been neglected. Her father had trained her in the management of a hundred employees and the working of gardens and fields, and to keep record of the movements of cattle and riders.' and beside the many duties she had added to this work was one of extreme delicacy, such as required all her tact and ingenuity. It was an unobtrusive, almost secret aid which she rendered to the Gentile families of the village. Though Jane Witherstein never admitted so to herself, it amounted to no less than a system of charity. But for her invention of numberless kinds of employment, for which there was no actual need, these families of Gentiles, who had failed in a Mormon community— would have starved. In aiding these poor people, Jane thought she deceived her keen churchmen, but it was a kind of deceit for which she did not pray to be forgiven. Equally as difficult was the task of deceiving the Gentiles, for they were as proud as they were poor. It had been a great grief to her to discover how these people hated her people, and it had been a source of great joy that through her they had come to soften in hatred." At any time this work called for a clearness of mind that precluded anxiety and worry, but under the present circumstances it required all her vigor and obstinate tenacity to pin her attention upon her task. 
Sunset came, bringing with the end of her labor a patient calmness and power to wait that had not been hers earlier in the day. She expected Judkins, but he did not appear. Her house was always quiet. Tonight, however, it seemed unusually so. At supper her women served her with a silent assiduity. It spoke what their sealed lips could not utter, the sympathy of Mormon women. Jerd came to her with the key of the great door of the stone stable, and to make his daily report about the horses. One of his daily duties was to give Black Star and Knight, and the other racers, a ten-mile run. This day it had been omitted, and the boy grew confused in explanations that she had not asked for. She did inquire if he would return on the morrow, and Jerd, in mingled surprise and relief, assured her he would always work for her. Jane missed the rattle and trot, canter and gallop of the incoming riders on the hard trails. Dusk shaded the grove where she walked. The birds ceased singing. The wind sighed through the leaves of the cottonwoods, and the running water murmured down its stone-bedded channel. The glimmering of the first star was like the peace and beauty of the night. Her faith welled up in her heart and said that all would soon be right in her little world. She pictured Venters about his lonely campfire, sitting between his faithful dogs. She prayed for his safety, for the success of his undertaking. Early the next morning one of Jane's women brought in word that Judkins wished to speak to her. She hurried out, and in her surprise to see him armed with rifle and revolver, she forgot her intention to inquire about his wound. "'Judkins! Those guns! You never carried guns!' "'It's high time, Miss Witherstein,' he replied. "'Will you come into the grove? "'It ain't just exactly safe for me to be seen here.' "'She walked with him into the shade of the cottonwoods. "'What do you mean?' "'Ms. Witherstein, I went to my mother's house last night. "'While there, someone knocked, and a man asked for me. "'I went to the door. "'He wore a mask. "'He said I'd better not ride any more for Jane Witherstein.' His voice was hoarse and strange, disguised, I reckon, like his face. He said no more, and ran off in the dark. "'Did you know who he was?' asked Jane, in a low voice. "'Yes.' Jane did not ask to know. She did not want to know. She feared to know. All her calmness fled at a single thought. "'That's why I'm packing guns,' went on Judkins. "'for I'll never quit riding for you, Miss Witherstein, till you let me go.' "'Judkins, do you want to leave me?' "'Do I look that way? Give me a hoss, a fast hoss, and send me out on the sage.' "'Oh, thank you, Judkins. You're more faithful than my own people. I ought not accept your loyalty. You might suffer more through it. But what in the world can I do? My head whirls. The wrong to Venters, the stolen herd—' These masks, threats, this coil in the dark. I can't understand. But I feel something dark and terrible closing in around me. Miss Witherstein, it's all simple enough, said Judkins earnestly. Now please listen, and begging your pardon, just turn that deaf Mormon ear aside, and let me talk clear and plain in the other. I went around to the saloons and the stores and the loafing places yesterday. All your riders are in. There's talk of a vigilance band organized to hunt down rustlers. They call themselves the Riders. That's the report. That's the reason given for your riders leaving you. Strange that only a few riders of other ranchers joined the band. And Tull's man, Jerry Card, he's the leader. 
I seen him and his horse. He ain't been to Glaze. I'm not easy to fool on the looks of a hoss that's traveled the sage. Tull and Jerry didn't ride to Glaze. Well, I met Blake and Dorn, both good friends of mine, usually, as far as their Mormon lights will let em go. But these fellers couldn't fool me, and they didn't try very hard. I asked them, straight out like a man, why they left you like that. I didn't forget to mention how you nursed Blake's poor old mother when she was sick, and how good you was to Dorn's kids. They looked ashamed, Miss Witherstein, and they just froze up, that dark, set look that makes them strange and different to me. But I could tell the difference between that first natural twinge of conscience and the later look of some secret thing. And the difference I caught was that they couldn't help themselves. They hadn't no say in the matter. They looked as if their being unfaithful to you was being faithful to a higher duty. And there's the secret. Why, it's as plain as, as sight of my gun here. Plain. My herds to wander in the sage, to be stolen. Jane Witherstein, a poor woman, her head to be brought low and her spirit broken. Why, Judkins, it's plain enough. Miss Witherstein, let me get what boys I can gather and hold the white herd. It's on the slope now, not ten miles out, three thousand head and all steers. They're wild and likely to stampede at the pop of a jackrabbit's ears. We'll camp right with them and try to hold them. Judkins, I'll reward you some day for your service, unless all is taken from me. Get the boys and tell Jerd to give you pick of my horses, except Black Star and Knight. But do not shed blood for my cattle, nor heedlessly risk your lives. Jane Witherstein rushed to the silence and seclusion of her room, and there could not longer hold back the bursting of her wrath. She went stone blind in the fury of a passion that had never before showed its power. Lying upon her bed, sightless, voiceless, she was a writhing, living flame, and she tossed there while her fury burned and burned, and finally burned itself out. Then, weak and spent, she lay thinking, not of the oppression that would break her, but of this new revelation of self. Until the last few days there had been little in her life to rouse passions. Her forefathers had been Vikings, savage chieftains who bore no cross and brooked no hindrance to their will. Her father had inherited that temper, and at times, like antelope fleeing before fire on the slope, his people fled from his red rages. Jane Witherstein realized that the spirit of wrath and war had lain dormant in her. She shrank from black depths hitherto unsuspected. The one thing in man or woman that she scorned above all scorn, and which she could not forgive, was hate. Hate headed a flaming pathway straight to hell. All in a flash, beyond her control, there had been in her a birth of fiery hate. And the man who had dragged her peaceful and loving spirit to this degradation was a minister of God's word, an elder of her church, the counselor of her beloved bishop. The loss of herds and ranges, even of Amber Spring and the old stone house, no longer concerned Jane Witherstein. She faced the foremost thought of her life, what she now considered the mightiest problem, the salvation of her soul. She knelt by her bedside and prayed. She prayed as she had never prayed in all her life, prayed to be forgiven to her sin, to be immune from that dark, hot hate, to love Tull as her minister, though she could not love him as a man, to do her duty by her church and people and those dependent upon her bounty, to hold reverence of God and womanhood inviolate. When Jane Witherstein rose from that storm of wrath and prayer for help, she was serene, calm, sure, a changed woman. 
She would do her duty as she saw it, live her life as her own truth guided her. She might never be able to marry a man of her choice, but she certainly never would become the wife of Tull. Her churchmen might take her cattle and horses, ranges and fields, her corrals and stables, the house of Witherstein, and the water that nourished the village of Cottonwoods, but they could not force her to marry Tull. They could not change her decision or break her spirit. Once resigned to further loss, and sure of herself, Jane Witherstein attained a peace of mind that had not been hers for a year. She forgave Tull, and felt a melancholy regret over what she knew he considered duty, irrespective of his personal feeling for her. First of all, Tull, as he was a man, wanted her for himself, and secondly he hoped to save her and her riches for his church. She did not believe that Tull had been actuated solely by his minister's zeal to save her soul. She doubted her interpretation of one of his dark sayings, that if she were lost to him, she might as well be lost to heaven. Jane Witherstein's common sense took arms against the binding limits of her religion, and she doubted that her bishop, whom she had been taught had direct communication with God, would damn her soul for refusing to marry a Mormon. As for Tull and his churchmen, when they had harassed her, perhaps made her poor, they would find her unchangeable, and then she would get back most of what she had lost. So she reasoned, true at last, to her faith in all men, and in their ultimate goodness. The clank of iron hoofs upon the stone courtyard drew her hurriedly from her retirement. There, beside his horse, stood Lassiter, his dark apparel and the great black gun-sheaths contrasting singularly with his gentle smile. Jane's active mind took up her interest in him, and her half-determined desire to use what charm she had to foil his evident design in visiting Cottonwoods. If she could mitigate his hatred of Mormons, or at least keep him from killing more of them, not only would she be saving her people, but also be leading back this blood-spiller to some semblance of the human. "'Mornin', ma'am,' he said, black sombrero in hand. "'Lassiter, I'm not an old woman, or even a madam,' she replied, with her bright smile. "'If you can't say Miss Witherstein, call me Jane.' "'I reckon Jane would be easier. First names are always handy for me.' "'Well, use mine, then. Lassiter, I'm glad to see you. I'm in trouble.' Then she told him of Judkin's return, of the driving of the Red Herd, of Venter's departure on Wrangell, and the calling in of her riders." "'Pears to me you're some smilin' and pretty for a woman with so much trouble,' he remarked. "'Lassiter, are you paying me compliments? But seriously, I've made up my mind not to be miserable. I've lost much, and I'll lose more. Nevertheless, I won't be sour, and I hope I'll never be unhappy again.' Lassiter twisted his hat round and round, as was his way, and took his time in replying. "'Women are strange to me.' I got to back-trailin' myself from them long ago. But I'd like a game, woman. Might I ask, seein' as how you take this trouble, if you're goin' to fight? Fight? How? Even if I would, I haven't a friend except that boy who doesn't dare stay in the village. I make bold to say, ma'am, Jane, that there's another if you want him. Lassiter, thank you. But how can I accept you as a friend? Think. Why, you'd ride down into the village with those terrible guns and kill my enemies, who are also my churchmen. I reckon I might be riled up to just about that, he replied dryly. She held out both hands to him. 
Lassiter, I'll accept your friendship, be proud of it, return it, if I may keep you from killing another Mormon. I'll tell you one thing, he said bluntly, as the gray lightning formed in his eyes. You're too good a woman to be sacrificed as you're going to be. No, I reckon you and me can't be friends on such terms. In her earnestness she stepped closer to him, repelled yet fascinated by the sudden transition of his moods. That he would fight for her was at once horrible and wonderful. You came here to kill a man, the man whom Milly Erne, the man who dragged Milly Erne to hell, put it that way. Jane Witherstein, yes, that's why I came here. I'd tell so much to no other living soul. There are things such a woman as you'd never dream of, so don't mention her again. Not till you tell me the name of the man. Tell you? I? Never. I reckon you will, and I'll never ask you. I'm a man of strange beliefs and ways of thinking, and I seem to see into the future and feel things hard to explain. The trail I've been following for so many years was twisted and tangled, but it's straightening out now. And, Jane Witherstein, you crossed it long ago to ease poor Milly's agony. That, whether you want or not, makes Lassiter your friend. But you cross it now strangely to mean something to me, God knows what, unless by your noble blindness to incite me to greater hatred of Mormon men. Jane felt swayed by a strength that far exceeded her own. In a clash of wills with this man, she would go to the wall. If she were to influence him, it must be wholly through womanly allurement. There was that about Lassiter which commanded her respect. She had abhorred his name. Face to face with him, she found she feared only his deeds. His mystic suggestion, his foreshadowing of something that she was to mean to him, pierced deep into her mind. She believed fate had thrown in her way the lover or husband of Milly Erne. She believed that through her an evil man might be reclaimed. His allusion to what he called her blindness terrified her. Such a mistaken idea of his might unleash the bitter, fatal mood she sensed in him. At any cost she must placate this man. She knew the die was cast, and that if Lassiter did not soften to a woman's grace and beauty and wiles, then it would be because she could not make him. "'I reckon you'll hear no more such talk from me,' Lassiter went on presently. "'Now, Miss Jane, I wrote in to tell you that your herd of white steers is down on the slope behind them big ridges, and I seen something going on that'd be mighty interesting to you if you could see it. Have you a field glass?' "'Yes, I have two glasses. I'll get them and ride out with you. "'Wait, Lassiter, please,' she said, and hurried within. "'Sending word to Jurd to saddle Black Star and fetch him to the court, "'she then went to her room and changed to the riding clothes "'she always donned when going into the sage. "'In this male attire her mirror showed her a jaunty, handsome rider. "'If she expected some little need of admiration from Lassiter, "'she had no cause for disappointment.' The gentle smile that she liked, which made of him another person, slowly overspread his face. "'If I didn't take you for a boy,' he exclaimed, "'it's powerful queer what difference clothes make. "'Now I've been some scared of your dignity, like when the other night you was all in white, "'but in this rig—' Black Star came pounding into the court, dragging Jurd half off his feet, and he whistled at Lassiter's black. But at sight of Jane all his defiant lines seemed to soften, and with tosses of his beautiful head he whipped his bridle. "'Down, Black Star, down,' said Jane. 
He dropped his head, and, slowly lengthening, he bent one foreleg, then the other, and sank to his knees. Jane slipped her left foot in the stirrup, swung lightly into the saddle, and Black Star rose with a ringing stamp. It was not easy for Jane to hold him to a canter through the grove, and like the wind he broke when he saw the sage. Jane let him have a couple of miles of free running on the open trail, and then she coaxed him in and waited for her companion. Lassiter was not long in catching up, and presently they were riding side by side. It reminded her how she used to ride with Venters. Where was he now? She gazed far down the slope to the curved purple lines of Deception Pass, and involuntarily shut her eyes with a trembling stir of nameless fear. "'We'll turn off here,' Lassiter said, "'and take to the sage a mile or so. The white herd is behind them big ridges.' "'What are you going to show me?' asked Jane. "'I'm prepared. Don't be afraid.' He smiled as if he meant that bad news came swiftly enough without being presaged by speech. When they reached the lee of a rolling ridge, Lassiter dismounted, motioning to her to do likewise. They left the horses standing, bridles down. Then Lassiter, carrying the field-glasses, began to lead the way up the slow rise of ground. Upon nearing the summit, he halted her with a gesture. "'I reckon we'd see more if we didn't show ourselves against the sky,' he said. "'I was here less than an hour ago. "'Then the herd was seven or eight miles south, and if they ain't bolted yet—' "'Lassiter, bolted?' "'That's what I said. Now let's see.' Jane climbed a few more paces behind him, and then peeped over the ridge. Just beyond began a shallow swale that deepened and widened into a valley, and then swung to the left. Following the undulating sweep of sage, Jane saw the straggling lines, and then the great body of the white herd. She knew enough about steers, even at a distance of four or five miles, to realize that something was in the wind. Bringing her field-glass into use, she moved it slowly from left to right, which action swept the whole herd into range. The stragglers were restless. The more compactly massed steers were browsing. Jane brought the glass back to the big sentinels of the herd, and she saw them trot with quick steps, stop short and toss wide horns, look everywhere, and then trot in another direction. "'Judkins hasn't been able to get his boys together yet,' said Jane. "'But he'll be there soon. I hope not too late. Lassiter, what's frightening those big leaders?' "'Nothing just on the minute,' replied Lassiter. "'Them steers are quietin' down.' They've been scared, but not bad yet. I reckon the whole herd has moved a few miles this way since I was here. They didn't browse that distance, not in less than an hour. Cattle aren't sheep. No, they just run it, and that looks bad. Lassiter, what frightened them? repeated Jane impatiently. Put down your glass. You'll see it first better with a naked eye. Now look along them ridges on the other side of the herd, the ridges where the sun shines bright on the sage. That's right. Now look, and look hard, and wait. Long-drawn moments of straining sight rewarded Jane with nothing save the low purple rim of ridge and the shimmering sage. It's begun again, whispered Lassiter, and he gripped her arm. Watch. There, did you see that? No, no. Tell me what to look for. A white flash, a kind of pinpoint of quick light, a gleam as from sun shining on something white. 
Suddenly Jane's concentrated gaze caught a fleeting glint. Quickly she brought her glass to bear on the spot. Again the purple sage, magnified in color and size and wave, for long moments irritated her with its monotony. Then from out of the sage on the ridge flew up a broad white object, flashed in the sunlight, and vanished. Like magic it was, and bewildered Jane. "'What on earth is that?' "'I reckon there's someone behind that ridge throwing up a sheet or a white blanket to reflect the sunshine.' "'Why?' queried Jane, more bewildered than ever. "'To stampede the herd,' replied Lassiter, and his teeth clicked. "'Ah!' she made a fierce, passionate movement clutched the glass tightly, shook as with the passing of a spasm, and then dropped her head. Presently she raised it to greet Lassiter with something like a smile. "'My righteous brethren are at work again,' she said in scorn. She had stifled the leap of her wrath, but for perhaps the first time in her life a bitter derision curled her lips. Lassiter's cool gray eyes seemed to pierce her. "'I said I was prepared for anything, but that was hardly true.' "'But why would they, anybody, stampede my cattle?' "'That's a Mormon's godly way of bringing a woman to her knees.' "'Lassiter, I'll die before I ever bend my knees. "'I might be led. I won't be driven. "'Do you expect the herd to bolt?' "'I don't like the looks of them big steers, but you can never tell. "'Cattle sometimes stampede as easily as buffalo. "'Any little flash or move will start them.' A rider getting down and walking toward them sometimes will make them jump and fly. Then again, nothing seems to scare them. But I reckon that white flare will do the biz. It's a new one on me, and I've seen some riding and rustling. It just takes one of them God-fearing Mormons to think of devilish tricks. Lassiter, might not this trick be done by Oldring's men? asked Jane, ever grasping at straws. It might be, but it ain't, replied Lassiter. Oldring's an honest thief. He don't skulk behind ridges to scatter your cattle to the four winds. He rides down on you, and if you don't like it, you can throw a gun. Jane bit her tongue to refrain from championing men who, at the very moment, were proving to her that they were little and mean compared even with rustlers. Look, Jane, them leading steers have bolted. They're drawing the stragglers, and that'll pull the whole herd. Jane was not quick enough to catch the details called out by Lassiter, but she saw the line of cattle lengthening. Then, like a stream of white bees pouring from a huge swarm, the steers stretched out from the main body. In a few moments, with astonishing rapidity, the whole herd got into motion. A faint roar of trampling hoofs came to Jane's ears and gradually swelled. Low, rolling clouds of dust began to rise above the sage. "'It's a stampede, and a hummer.' said Lassiter. "'Oh, Lassiter, the herd's running with the valley. It leads into the canyon. There's a straight jump-off.' "'I reckon they'll run into it, too. But that's a good many miles yet. And, Jane, this valley swings round almost north before it goes east. That stampede will pass within a mile of us.' The long, white, bobbing line of steers streaked swiftly through the sage, and a funnel-shaped dust-cloud arose at a low angle. A dull rumbling filled Jane's ears. "'I'm thinking of milling that herd,' said Lassiter. His gray glance swept up the slope to the west. "'There's some specks and dust way off toward the village. Maybe that's Judkins and his boys. 
"'It ain't likely he'll get here in time to help. "'You'd better hold Blackstar here on this high ridge.' He ran to his horse, and, throwing off saddlebags and tightening the cinches, he leaped astride and galloped straight down across the valley. Jane went for Blackstar, and leading him to the summit of the ridge, she mounted and faced the valley with excitement and expectancy. She had heard of milling stampeded cattle, and knew it was a feat accomplished by only the most daring riders. The white herd was now strung out in a line two miles long, the dull rumble of thousands of hoofs deepened into continuous low thunder, and as the steers swept swiftly closer, the thunder became a heavy roll. Lassiter crossed in a few moments the level of the valley to the eastern rise of ground, and there waited the coming of the herd. Presently, as the head of the white line reached a point opposite to where Jane stood, Lassiter spurred his black into a run. Jane saw him take a position on the off-side of the leaders of the stampede, and there he rode. It was like a race. They swept on down the valley, and when the end of the white line neared Lassiter's first stand, the head had begun to swing round to the west. It swung slowly and stubbornly, yet surely, and gradually assumed a long, beautiful curve of moving white. To Jane's amaze she saw the leaders swinging, turning till they headed back toward her and up the valley. Out to the right of these wild, plunging steers ran Lassiter's black, and Jane's keen eye appreciated the fleet stride and sure-footedness of the blind horse. Then it seemed that the herd moved in a great curve, a huge half-moon with the points of head and tail almost opposite, and a mile apart. But Lassiter relentlessly crowded the leaders, shearing them to the left, turning them little by little. And the dust-blinded wild followers plunged on madly in the tracks of their leaders. This ever-moving, ever-changing curve of steers rolled toward Jane, and when below her, scarce half a mile, it began to narrow and close into a circle. Lassiter had ridden parallel with her position, turned toward her, then aside, and now he was riding directly away from her, all the time pushing the head of that bobbing line inward. It was then that Jane, suddenly understanding Lassiter's feet, stared and gasped at the riding of this intrepid man. His horse was fleet and tireless, but blind. He had pushed the leaders around and around till they were about to turn in on the inner side of the end of that line of steers. The leaders were already running in a circle. The end of the herd was still running almost straight. But soon they would be wheeling. Then, when Lassiter had the circle formed, how would he escape? With Jane Witherstein, prayer was as ready as praise, and she prayed for this man's safety. A circle of dust began to collect. Dimly, as through a yellow veil, Jane saw Lassiter press the leaders inward to close the gap in the sage. She lost sight of him in the dust. Again she thought she saw the black, riderless now, rear and drag himself and fall. Lassiter had been thrown, lost. Then he reappeared, running out of the dust into the sage. He had escaped, and she breathed again. Spellbound, Jane Witherstein watched this stupendous mill-wheel of steers. Here was the milling of the herd. The white running circle closed in upon the open space of sage, and the dust circles closed above into a pall. The ground quaked, and the incessant thunder of pounding hoofs rolled on. Jane felt deafened, yet she thrilled to a new sound. As the circle of sage lessened, the steers began to bawl, and when it closed entirely there came a great upheaval in the center, and a terrible thumping of heads and clicking of horns. Bawling, climbing, goring, 
the great mass of steers on the inside wrestled in a crashing din, heaved and groaned under the pressure. Then came a deadlock. The inner strife ceased, and the hideous roar and crash. Movement went on in the outer circle, and that, too, gradually stilled. The white herd had come to a stop, and the pall of yellow dust began to drift away on the wind. Jane Witherstein waited on the ridge with full and grateful heart. Lassiter appeared, making his weary way toward her through the sage. And up on the slope Judkins rode into sight with his troop of boys. For the present, at least, the white herd would be looked after. When Lassiter reached her and laid his hand on Black Star's mane, Jane could not find speech. "'Killed my horse,' he panted. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' cried Jane. "'Lassiter, I know you can't replace him, but I'll give you any one of my racers, Bells or Knight, even Black Star. "'I'll take a fast horse, Jane, but not one of your favorites,' he replied. "'Only, will you let me have Black Star now, and ride him over there, and head off them fellers who stampeded the herd?' He pointed to several moving specks of black and puffs of dust in the purple sage. "'I can head them off with this horse, and then—' "'Then, Lassiter?' They'll never stampede no more cattle. Oh, no, no, Lassiter, I won't let you go. But a flush of fire flamed in her cheeks, and her trembling hands shook Black Star's bridle, and her eyes fell before Lassiter's. End of chapter 6